So today we're going to finish this Overcome series that we began, where we've looked at several things that can contribute to stalling us out spiritually, these barriers that we've talked about. Um, And we started with the expectation, remember, that if you're going to grow spiritually, it's likely going to create a battle. The world around us, the flesh within us, the always ever scheming enemy against us is going to fight against our attempt to grow into who it is that God has purposed us to be. So we should expect a battle, but the balance of that, we said, was if we would engage God personally, and we would engage God through His Word. Then in 2 Peter 1.3, we're told that His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Okay? So we acknowledge straight out the, the challenge. Do you remember the challenge that sin presents to our growth? We talked about that. And we shed light on the, the dead weight that unforgiveness is to us spiritually. We called out the, uh, the love of money for its false seduction. And last week we looked at the fact that anger actually not just stall us, it it can move us backwards spiritually in our journey. I know from conversations we've had that God has been active dealing with us on these different areas of our life, sometimes that uh, just messing us up and wrecking us so that he can rebuild us, oftentimes just refining us, calling to our spirit and our attention when we give it to him. This area, these areas of our life um, that we just work through because they're challenges that we face personally in becoming who God has created us to be. So today I want to finish this series by considering just the cancerous effect that a critical spirit has in the person who wants to grow spiritually. Okay? Now God has created each of us to be unique And while we're all works in progress, we're going to be incomplete until we reach heaven, we often see the most beautiful parts of God's creation in the people around us. We saw so many examples of it Friday night. Yet, there are times when someone's uniqueness and their imperfections clash against our own, and we find ourselves becoming critical. Sometimes we even forget that in criticizing one of God's creation, that we're actually sometimes criticizing the work of God himself. Two two taxidermists stood in front of this window where an owl was on display. And because they're taxidermists, and that's what they do, they had an opinion. And they decided that, uh, you know, the way this owl was mounted wasn't quite right. The eyes itself were not quite natural. The wings were not quite in proportion to the head. That all the feathers were a little bit um, not so neatly arranged. And and the feet could be improved. And about the time they'd finished their critique, all of a sudden, the owl turns its head and blinks. (laughs) I mean, did God really do such a bad job on that owl? People can be very critical. You and I, 
unfiltered by God's love and grace can be very critical. And when we are, we're such a poor representation of our Creator. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. In your Bible, your Bible app, there's a Bible there on the chair in front of you. In Matthew chapter 7, we're going to unfold a familiar passage to us and consider how this critical spirit, if allowed to, can either stunt or even, even stall our spiritual growth. Okay? And let's start by realizing that we are not to judge. Okay? That's the impetus that we're going to find here in chapter 7. We read in this passage... Um, that, by the way, is the most quoted passage, or should I say the most misquoted passage in our day and age, in our time. Usually, it comes across not as a direct quote to Matthew 7, 1, which reads, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. Usually, it's just shortened by three words, right? Don't judge me. Okay? Don't judge me is how it is. By this, a person means that you have no right to approve or disapprove of anything about me. Okay? Well, that's not completely false. We'll see that we unfold Jesus' teachings. Like there are many times when we are called as his people to make judgments in this world as a part of due diligence. Aside from what he's talking about here, think about the employer who has to make judgments about an employee when it comes to the value they have to their business. Think about a supervisor who has to make a judgment about the performance of someone who is on their team because they have to determine productivity for that team. Think about how we as parents have to make judgments with regard to our children as to what area of their life might need a little more fine-tuning at this time versus another time, how we are, are to steward them as our children. Think about how a teacher has to make a judgment about their students and where they're lacking so that they can maybe beef up that area of their teaching. Think about a coach who has to make judgment about his players, where they can contribute best to the um, goal of the team. And the list could go on. Right? But there are judgments that have to be made. These are not the assessments Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Okay? Let's also note um, that although the person who says don't judge me is, Jesus here is not talking about some kind of subjective morality that often is at the core of that comment. Okay? The Bible is the word of God. And it contains for us the truth of God. And so when the Bible calls something sin, I believe it's sin. And when the Bible calls something holy, I believe it's holy. That fits um, what we're talking about here. The Bible is the objective source of truth that's been given to us by God himself. It trumps your subjective opinion and my subjective opinion. Because it is the truth from God's word. Now that said, Jesus is warning us here as his followers not to somehow place ourselves in spiritual authority over other people. Okay? He's warning us to not set our own standards as the standard to which somehow others feel like they have to 
perform, to not assume that it's our place to judge someone, meaning to pronounce somehow someone's eternity as it relates to God. That's what Jesus is talking about. And that is not our judge. And it fits with a similar idea that we find in James chapter 4, verse 12, where James writes, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, I know a lot of people with critical spirits that are very able to destroy. <laughs> but they don't do a very good job on the saving end of that. Okay. Do you really have the final word on someone else's guilt? The final word on someone else's salvation? Are you the judge of someone else's eternity? When we say yes to those questions, we assume the place of God. Because that only belongs to God alone. So Jesus says, be careful of assuming this kind of posture. And one of the reasons you might think about being careful of that, he says, is in verse 2. He says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, that verse 2 is completely opposite to how most of us live. Okay? Think about how prone we are to give ourselves wiggle room, right? Where we judge other people by the letter of the law, but we judge ourselves by the intent of the law. We judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions, We ask people not to presume upon God's grace and just sin because you know he'll forgive them. And yet sometimes we do that very thing. Jesus says, be careful not to judge other people by a stricter set of standards than you are willing to live by yourself. Now contrast just that spirit, that critical spirit, with Jesus' words just two chapters back. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, where he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I mean, as followers of Jesus, have we not been eternally impacted by the mercy of God? And as a result of living in that mercy, Jesus expects that we will show that mercy to other people as well. Ultimately, judging that Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 7 has to do with playing God. In contrast, instead of identifying with God, Jesus is calling us to identify with another person as a fellow sinner, as a fellow struggler, to humble ourselves and realize that we are subject to temptations, though they might not be the same temptations. That we're guilty of sin, though it might not be the same sin. That we don't have the right to bring guilt and shame because without the cross and the mercy and the grace of God, we carry guilt and shame. Listen, we don't set the standard. Okay? We humbly bow to God's standard in His Word 
challenging each other at times and calling each other to change at times. So Jesus is going to go on and illustrate in a very visual way that not only do we not set the standard, but we ourselves are not the standard. Okay? Using an example of hyperbole, meaning he gives us an exaggerated statement that's used to make a point. It's not to be taken literally, but it's easily understood. Go down to verse 3 with me. Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now Jesus gives an example that helps us understand the nature of what he's talking about. He's not talking about some kind of a a moral relativism where each person decides on their own what is right. He's talking about people who criticize others, who judge them over small differences and actions. And he's talking about the relative insignificance of whatever it is you're calling out in the life of this person in relation to the severe problem that you're having with your own heart that's driving that action in the first place. He's saying the accuser can't help anyone because their, their spiritual vision is impaired by their own sin or their own heart. And in the end, that's why Jesus refers to them as a hypocrite because they think they can clearly see the sin in someone else but they miss completely the sin of their own self-righteousness and their own judgmental attitude. Okay? That's not to say we have no business being in each other's business. Okay? As brothers and sisters in Christ, God calls us to engage one another, to help spur one another on towards spiritual growth and toward holiness and all those pieces so we have some responsibility in there in fact paul says in galatians chapter 6 verse 1 brothers and sisters if someone is caught in a sin you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently but watch yourselves or you may also be tempted yeah i think as disciples we're called to examine ourselves to seek god for forgiveness and healing in ourselves before we try to fix or help other people, when we lose our self-righteousness, Jesus would say, you'll be able to more clearly see the struggle someone else has because you're looking through the lens of humility. As someone who knows that I struggle too, it's a whole different approach when someone comes to you that way than when they come to you in this Matthew 7 kind of way when we put it all together we're reminded our our responsibility is to lovingly challenge one another and that response flows from humility from a life that's um, self-examined a life that's yielded to God and a life that's yielded to his word that puts us in a position to see things well but when we're in that position there's no self-righteousness about that we understand ourselves as forgiven grace-filled people of God. And so while God's Word gives us this objective source with regard to holiness, 
The Bible also tells us that our, our own lives, our own journeys, our own stories that we have been writing, it does provide a, um, a subjective element to holiness, if you will. So if you read through the New Testament, especially in the epistles, we realize that many of the Christians, they're first-generation Christians, most of them were raised in pagan homes with pagan religions, and so some people came out of either their Jewish background or out of their pagan background, and for some it, it provided a whole new life of freedom, like especially the people who came out from under the, the rule, if you would, of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who just had a prescription for every step of their life and every breath they took, and they smothered people with religion. And they found Jesus, and they found freedom. And they lived in freedom. But for some others, they came out of either Judaism or some pagan religions, and, and they didn't know what to do. I mean, all that stuff was bad, right? And they left all that stuff, and so one person's freedom was another person's curse. And they had to relate to one another. And it affected this particular area of their lives. And, and like, is that really that much different than today? I mean, don't we deal with these things in terms of our own attitudes towards modesty or music or movies, towards alcohol, towards events we attend, towards clubs we choose to join where one person says, I am free in Christ to live a life that honors him that includes this. And another person says, I can't go near that. It would violate my conscience. To me, it would be completely wrong. Can both of those be right? Yes, they can. And it provides a lot of the judging um, that goes on in people's lives. Listen to what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 14. He's going to give us a principle at the end, but he's going to give us an illustration at the beginning. Paul says, except those whose faith is weak without quarreling, or some of your versions might say, without passing judgment over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does for God has accepted them. So in particular, this would mean those who were eating meat that might have been sacrificed to an idol. Okay? The meat would be sacrificed to an idol, then it would be sold in the market. So some people wouldn't touch the meat because they're like, I left that idol worship. That's no longer my God. I have to stay away from it. Another person would say, idol schmeidel. <laughs> you know, that doesn't bother me. Like, that's a good steak. We're gonna, <laughs> let's go for it, right? And Paul says, both of you can be right, but both of you can be wrong in how you treat one another. So he says in verse 4 this principle, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. Reminds us that many of us still have a lot of growing to do because we're not the standard. So when God works in us through mercy and forgiveness, when we truly experience His grace as more than just a transaction, but instead as a personal gift from God that is undeserved, 
Jesus teaches that the appropriate response from us is not to judge other people, but instead to extend to them the same mercy and forgiveness that we have received from God ourselves. He's going to finish up this passage by reminding us that we will grow spiritually when we can live in the right tension with this. Okay? Now there are a lot of different places um, in the scriptures where there's a tension in the things that are said, meaning two seemingly opposite things pulling against each other. After addressing the extreme hypocritical judger in verses 1 through 5 of Matthew 7, Jesus is just going to address now the person who naively accepts that everyone wants their input. <laughs> right? I'm living right, and, and there's an issue in your life, so let me speak to it. Okay? In the context of what he's saying, pick up with me in verse 6. He says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So after telling us not to judge others inappropriately, Jesus calls us to appropriately judge or to discern the receptivity of the person with whom we communicate. Okay? I personally like have found this um, principle spans a lot of different areas of life. Okay? It, it guides me in my thoughts about when to share biblical truth. When I think people are open to godly wisdom. When I choose to speak with regard to personal feelings or healthy counsel or many other things. The reality is every day we have to make evaluations in this life. And choose, God, what is it that you want me to do or to not do at this particular point? What is it that you want me to say or to not say in this particular circumstance? Now, these terms, dogs and pigs, you know, not very flattering, especially in that day and time. But they're probably, even though they might conjure up a lot of images in our minds, Jesus is probably talking about people who are not receptive and maybe even are, um, would push back against um, the gospel, okay, against um, people that are oppositional to Jesus' followers, okay? And when you think what is sacred or pearls, most likely in the context, we're talking about the message of the gospel or the truth of the scriptures. Not everyone um, is receptive at every given point to hear the message of God's kingdom. Have you found that to be true? <laughs> Have you found that to be true often? And have you learned from that experience, I think, is the question. The truth is, not always appreciated. And it's shown in some people by their rejection of it. That's who Jesus is talking about here in verse 6. Okay? Now, in context, um, you say Jesus is not contradicting himself. Okay? Because he said first, don't judge people. And he said in verse 6, oh, by the way, judge people as dogs and pigs. <laughs> you know? Um, He's talking about living in the right tension. There are dilemmas in life like this, where both what Jesus said in verse 1 and what Jesus said in verse 6 are both true at the same time. Okay? So I live in this tension of accepting, accepting both truths, but of trying to determine which principle 
is right for me to engage at any given time? Am I supposed to exercise judgment in this situation? Or am I supposed to exercise, does it lead me to restraint or does it lead me to engage? Now, this isn't the only place in Scripture. There are many others. Let me just give you three of them. Here's an example uh, of this tension. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus says, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Then he turns around in chapter 6 and says, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. Okay. Well, which one's true? Do I live so that they can see my acts, or do I do them in secret so they can't, or is there just a right tension that leads me to live a righteous or an honoring, a God-honoring life that gives glory to Him and doesn't steal it for myself? That's the right tension. I do these things not so that you will think well of me. I do these things so that you will think well of the God I serve. That's the right tension. Which principle is correct? Okay. Should we, as Jesus said in that, uh, at the end of that scripture we looked at last week, not be anxious about what we eat or drink? Or what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, when he said if a person refuses to work, he's not to be supplied with food from others in the church. Are those contradictory? Or is there an appropriate tension between God's provision and our own personal responsibility? Okay. I think the answer is the second. One more, Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which is right, or what's the right tension? Isn't the right tension uh, one that allows us to grow in our righteousness without fearing our shortcomings? Living in the right tension. So here in Matthew chapter 7, when we put this together, we live in this tension of being prohibited from declaring ourselves the absolute judge while at the same time appropriately evaluating the behavior of others. And the reason I'm evaluating that is, God, what's my role in this? What, not that I can change someone, but there are times when we're called to confront others. There are times when we're called to challenge others. It's just not all the time and on all situations with regard to that. So it takes a lot of work to live in the right tension. But I think the greatest key to doing it successfully is we just live in this humble dependence upon God and His Word to help us discern His will at any given time. Okay? Which makes it really hard if you're only thinking about it on Sunday morning, doesn't it? Because <laughs> most of those dilemmas happen outside of this hour that we're together in church. But when we stay connected to Him, we stay in tune with him, we're much more likely to grow spiritually and be able to live this way that he lives. And we just learn a lot simply by looking at the life of Jesus and studying it and imitating his life. So we live in this tension personally where we pray and then we discern and then we think and only then do we respond appropriately if we get those out of order we might respond but it might not be appropriately and it might not advance the kingdom in the lives of others and it might not advance the kingdom in our own lives either now i want to conclude that not only this message but this whole series 
Um, and I want to put forward for you four things that I think help position us to grow spiritually in the, into growing into the person that God is calling us to become. It's not like, here's, here's your self-help book, you know, like these are your cliff notes for the, whole, for the whole series. I just think there's a way that we can position ourselves to move forward spiritually that includes at least these four things. Number one um, is just be honest with your struggles. Be honest with your struggles. I think it's more work to put up a false facade than it is to be real. And your energy, like that's needed to grow spiritually, it's better used to fight a battle than it is to create an image. Nobody believes your image for very long. Over the long run, our real self is always displayed. Isn't it better to just put our energy into fighting a battle that brings honor to God? Maybe we've not addressed your biggest battle in this series, okay? Just know that we all struggle, and so be honest about your struggles. Number two, settle the lordship issue, okay? I think this is the first and most important battle, okay? If you've not surrendered not, not just your, your life, but control of your life to God, spiritual growth is going to move slow, if it even moves forward at all. If you haven't settled the lordship issue, you're going to be consistently frustrated by the lack of spiritual growth in your life. Number three, uh, I can't emphasize this one enough, connect with God's word, okay? Remember what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 1.3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Most of the time, Many times what we need in these struggles and dilemmas of spiritual growth that we have, what we need can be found in God's Word. And number four, commit to letting God lovingly lead you forward. If you're going to move forward, you're going to have to trust His heart. You're going to have to trust His leadership. You're going to have to trust His outcomes. And you can do all of those things because you trust His love. In a moment, we're going to sing and worship. Uh, before that, I'm going to pray. And I just invite you, there's a couple of us stand in the back. If there's something that you need to pray through with regard to this issue of your spiritual growth or the lordship issue of your life, would you join us? Would you talk through it? Would you let God have that control so that you can experience the promises that he's given you? Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, you are um, the creator of all things. The things that we love and the things that irritate us. Lord, things of people, the things in people like us. And the things in people that aren't like us that uh, maybe drive us crazy. But Father, we are all on a journey of growth to become the people you've called us to be. The people you died for us to be, Jesus. May we yield to you the lordship of our life so that you might bring a harvest of righteousness in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.